You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Well, hey, I hope you have your Bibles. We are in Luke 18, and I can just, uh, so excited to share what God has put on my heart, but what a fitting passage for this past few weeks. Would you agree? A passage on prayer, a passage on relentless prayer. One of the core values that the elders have uh, included of the six core values at West, West Wind Church is relentless prayer. And you might be wondering why. Why relentless prayer? Well, let's go back to Jesus. You know, as Tara said, you know, the the scriptures are about him. Jesus longed for the church to become a house of prayer. We've talked about that much over the past few years. And then if you go back to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah said, a house of prayer for what? For all the nations, that we would pray God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven for all the nations. But in addition to that, we believe, like James the Apostle, the brother of Jesus, that the effectual, the fervent prayer of righteous people prevails much. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you believe God hears your prayer, and when you fervently pray, great things happen for his kingdom and glory? Do you believe that? That's truth from Scripture. In fact, to add to that, the Apostle John says this, 1 John chapter 5, when we pray according to his will, the Father hears us and he acts. And so today we want to dive into a passage that is all about relentless prayer. But remember the context. If you were here last week, Matt Deaver shared about the second coming of Christ and what that might look like. This parable comes on the heels of that. And if you recall, from verse 26 to the end of chapter 17, it talks about the second coming being like in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. Think about the implications of what Jesus was saying. Yes, things were just kind of normal. People were working, they were marrying, they were burying. But there's one common denominator, folks, between the days of Noah and Lot. And you know what the common denominator is? Those were wicked days. They were dark days. In fact, Genesis chapter 6 says this, that every thought and intention of people's hearts in the days of Noah were wicked, and God decided to destroy the earth, but then Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, not because Noah was righteous, but because God was gracious. And then you jump to the idea of Lot, what was going on there? There's a conversation between Abraham, if you recall, and Uh, an angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. You can read about that in Genesis 18 and 19. And so the angel of the Lord is getting ready to destroy a place called Sodom and Gomorrah, a dark place. And Abraham's contending, why? Because his nephew Lot lives there. And he says to the angel of the Lord, listen, if there's 50 or 45, will you still destroy 50 or 45 righteous people? If there's 40 or 30 righteous people, if there's 20 or 10 righteous, will you still destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And the sad thing is, folks, there was not 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And so Lot flees, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, and wickedness is uh, addressed. And so this parable is given on the heels of when light was being dispelled by darkness, when things were going from bad to worse, when the righteous were wondering if the the wicked are going to prevail. That's why this parable is given. And so as we're in this, you know, the kingdom now and the kingdom to come, sometimes we get discouraged. And Christ is calling us to be ready, ready for his second appearing, longing for his appearing, praying for his appearing. But how do we do that? The best way we can be prepared when it seems to be things are going from bad to worse, where darkness is dispelling light, is to be a people of relentless prayer. So that's the context of Luke 18, the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. So I hope you have your Bibles, and I would encourage you, please, take a Connect card, folks at home, download the digital guide. But let me start out with the blessing today. And the blessing is this. Through the parable of the widow and unjust judge, Jesus challenges us to focus on relentless prayer, to pray without ceasing. When you get discouraged, when you feel worn out, when you're growing weary and well-doing, what is the remedy? It's to pray. It's to pray relentlessly. So three things we're going to see this beautiful parable focuses on, and it always starts uh, vertical. And so, number one, focus on the Father. Focus on the Father. Now, I want to take you back 2,000 years. Typically, when Jesus gave parables, people got it immediately. They knew what it meant to live in a culture and society where there were unjust judges. So let me paint a picture of how it worked in Israel during Christ's day. There were two judges back then. One was the righteous judge who worked to uh, bring about the Mosaic law, to honor the widows, the orphans, the outcasts in society, to care for them. And there were many righteous judges. However, this is not that kind of judge. There was another judge in ancient Israel, and that judge was appointed by Rome, sometimes appointed by the wicked King Herod. The judge we're talking about in this parable is a pagan judge. How do I know that? It's very clear. There is no fear of God in this person and no love for his fellow man. This judge is in it for himself. He's self-centered. He's motivated by status and selfish gain. And so it begs a question. Why does Jesus tell a parable using such a diabolical figure in society? Someone who was just absolutely looked down upon. Well, folks, it's a uh, device that's used in literature, ancient literary device, where Jesus is going to compare the lesser to the greater. And that's what happens throughout this whole parable. We're going to see that. So what's the lesser? The lesser is a wicked, pagan, unjust judge who does what? Steps to the plate and helps out this widow. If that's true of a wicked person, how much more so? The righteous judge, a holy God who cares for and loves his children will step to the plate and honor them, bring about justice. And so let's go back to our passage Luke 18, verses 4 through 6. I love this. Then Jesus said, 
Listen to what the unjust judge says or what the unjust judge teaches us. Will not God grant justice to his elect, to his people who cry out to him, how often? Day and night, relentlessly, praying without ceasing. Will he delay to help them? That's rhetorical. Of course he won't delay. He's for us. He's not against us. He's always inclining his ear to us. That's who he is. He's a good, good father. I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. And so when you think about this powerful parable, think in terms of lesser. If a wicked, unjust, self-centered judge honors this widow finally, how much more so? The God of the universe who created you, who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, who's called a good, good father, will take care of your every need. Therefore, we pray. Now, if you need a proof text, I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. This is the same concept It's an argument in Matthew 7 from lesser to greater. If you're taking notes, make sure you make note of that. You won't understand the parable if you understand this literary device. So in Matthew 7, this is the conclusion of this beautiful sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's relentless prayer. Keep asking why, it'll be given to you. Keep searching why, you'll find. Keep knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. What man among you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, this is the lesser, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, this is the greater, how much more will your heavenly Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Friends, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. I love my kids. I have three young adults. My daughter just had a baby, seven weeks old, little Genesis Rose. We were with her for a day recently. And we love to give good gifts. And what God is saying is, of course a parent loves to do that, to bless their children, to put a smile on their face, to give them good gifts. We do that all the time. But here's the lesser. I'm sinful, and I do that. How much more so God, who is perfectly righteous, will give good gifts to his children who ask him. And so we pray. We pray relentlessly. We pray morning, noon, and night. We pray without seeking, purposing his will, purposing his kingdom to come, purposing the second coming of Christ. Now, I know what's happening in some of your minds right now because I've seen it time and time again in life group and in leadership meetings. You believe this in your head, but sometimes you struggle in your hearts. Yes, I believe he's a good, good father, but I don't get this idea of praying. How do I know if I'm praying the will of God? How do I know if he's truly hearing me and inclining his ear? How do I know if he's working on my behalf? And folks, here's what I'd like to say about prayer. It is an absolute mystery, but the reality is there's a lot of truth in Scripture about prayer, and there's four things I've concluded over the years that God always does because he loves us as his children. There's four ways he responds to our prayer, and I want to share those with you to encourage you. Why? To keep praying. So let's take a look at those ways. Sometimes 
God says no. Let me ask you a question. Is no a good answer? Parents, is no a good answer to your children? <laughs> of course it is. If I gave to my children everything they wanted, guess what? Not a good thing. Another cell phone dad, the newest model, PlayStation, Xbox, 500 more dollars. Okay, guys, can't you enjoy last year's model? Good parents don't always give what the kids are asking. Let me share with you two reasons God says no, and there's more. Number one, it comes from James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Sometimes, folks, when we pray, you know what? We pray with selfish ambition. James says we pray with wrong motives. We pray in a very self-centered way, and therefore, thankfully, God says no. In addition, God says no because sometimes, as 1 John chapter 5 says, we pray out of the will of God. In other words, when we pray, we're supposed to pray according to his will, and one of the best ways you could do that is praying his word. But when we pray out of his will, thankfully he's a good, good father who's seated on the throne, knows what's best, and says no. I've been a Christian now 41 years. I am so thankful there are times when God just said no. He knows what's best. He's a good, good father. Now think about it. Two years ago, we went on a journey with a property. Do you remember Warrior Lane? We spent dozens, if not hundreds of hours looking at the Warrior Lane property, praying our heart out. We launched a capital initiative. You pledged a million dollars. We were thinking maybe, just maybe, Warrior Lane was the place. Aren't you glad the Lord closed that door and opened another? Because the property we're going to be going into in a few months, folks, I'll tell you something, hands down, just beautifully repurposed for a church. Thank the Lord that he says no. Now, secondly, sometimes, don't miss this, God says slow. Sometimes God says slow. And there's story after story in Scripture where his timing is perfect, and yet we get frustrated with his timing. Many of us are aware of Abraham and Sarah, right? The promised child is coming, and they couldn't wait. They took matters into their own hands. There's a story in the Gospel of John who, dear friends of Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus dies. Think it through. Jesus comes three days after he dies. Do you remember what Martha said to him? Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, Martha's calling Jesus out. Your timing's not that good. It's not that precise. What were you thinking? If you were here, my brother would be alive. And then Martha recalibrates. She says, but you know what, Jesus? I still believe if you ask your father, great things are going to happen. What did Jesus say? Your brother will rise again. Friends, there's a great lesson when we think about the timing of God. And I want to share this with you. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Never put a comma where God puts a period. And never put a period where God puts a comma. Think about that. Martha thought initially it was a period, game over, brother dead. No, Jesus said it's just a comma. This is a providential pause in God's kingdom coming in their life. Can we trust the good, good father who's omniscient sitting on the throne that he knows the best time for his work to happen? Again, go from Warrior Lane to Westbrook two years later. 
Would you agree God's timing has been really, really unique? Who would have thought in a million years in the midst of COVID-19, Westwind Church is purchasing a permanent space for ministry? I stand in awe of the Lord, guys. I absolutely stand in awe of the Lord because all odds are against us and yet he comes through. It's his timing, not ours. He's on the throne. We say thank you. And I'm sure Mary and Martha learned that lesson. Abraham and Sarah certainly learned that lesson and the list goes on and on. Please remember, when Jesus puts a comma, it's not a period. And we pause, we rest We wait on the Lord. However, there are times when he puts a period and we move on. So how does God answer prayer? Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says slow. The third one is sometimes he says grow. And I love this about prayer. And again, you'll see this throughout the narrative of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul, and I want to encourage you, read that whole chapter. He said three times he prayed to the Father to take away or remove what he called a thorn in his flesh. Nobody really knows what the thorn in the flesh was. Maybe a speech impediment, maybe something wrong with the eyes. Who knows? It really doesn't matter. But here's what, here's what God said to Paul. He prayed, God says, Paul, in this thorn in the flesh, I want you to grow. I want you to mature in your faith. And so let me read to you what basically he says. Paul says, I learned that when I am weak, what happens? He is strong. God allowed this thorn in the flesh to stay in place so Paul would grow up in his faith. He'd be less prideful. He'd point to the strength of God, not to the strength of man in his ministry and journey. Sometimes God says go or no. Sometimes God says slow. Sometimes God says grow. And the final one, sometimes God says go. And folks, everywhere in Scripture we read, there are times where God just says in the affirmative go. One of my favorite passages, when I think of open doors and God giving his thumbs up and saying go, is Acts 13. I want to take you there just in your mind's eye. Just imagine the the early church is is burgeoning. They're moving from Jerusalem up north to Antioch. Antioch's becoming a ministry base, a leadership base. The gospel's going to advance to the ends of the earth. Here's what's happening in a prayer meeting. Acts 13, they're fasting, they're praying. God speaks, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me two men. Do you know who they are? Barnabas and Saul to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's a go. And it was very clear in prayer, in fasting, God said go. Flip a few chapters later, Acts 16, second missionary journey. Paul's uh, getting a vision from the Lord. The vision says go to Europe, go to Macedonia. Why? There's a gal, she's a God-fearer named Lydia. God opened Lydia's heart. She embraced the gospel. Her and her family were baptized. The church was launched. The Philippian jailer comes to faith in Christ. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you and your household. Boom, open door to uh, Philippi. Europe receives the gospel and the kingdom comes. And so think it through today. He's a good, good father. From lesser to greater, if a wicked, self-centered, pagan judge takes care of a widow, how much more so a holy, righteous, loving God will take care of his kids. He loves us. He's going to bless us. But he does it, folks, properly. 
Sometimes it's no, thank God for that. Sometimes it's slow, wait for his timing, embrace his timing. Sometimes it's grow, oh Lord, this is hard, but I'm growing. Sometimes it's go, and we celebrate it. And I would contend this morning that all four answers are equally necessary and vitally important, and we can stand in awe of God when he responds accordingly. And so where does relentless prayer begin? It begins vertically. Our Father who art in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer, folks, and we keep praying. Secondly, we focus on faithfulness. Now, please remember, and I want you to look at verse one again, that the primary purpose of this parable is found there. What's the purpose? To pray always, notice the next phrase, and to not become discouraged. I've been around Christianity long enough, been a pastor for many years, and I've seen this this discouragement motif time and time again. People are all in, they're serving, they're faithful, they're growing, something happens, they drop out. Galatians 6, 9, don't grow weary in well-doing. Why? In due season you'll reap if you don't faint. We can grow weary in well-doing. Remember, Jesus is coming. There's an imminent return, but times can get difficult. Darkness can look like it's dispelling light. Righteousness can look like it's being overcome with wickedness. What are we supposed to do? Keep praying. Stay in the game. Don't get discouraged. Don't bow out. Keep your lamps burning. Be ready for the return of Christ. And so how do we do that? We have to learn from the widow. Now, this widow is, um, again, just like the unjust judge, is a beautiful picture of perseverance. So let me paint a picture for you. If anyone in that culture had all the odds stacked against her, it was this gal. Let me tell you why. Number one, she was a widow. And in that society, and the picture that's being painted here in Luke 18, she had no one there to advocate for her. No husband, no son, no nephew, no leader, elder in the village. She is absolutely all alone. She is absolutely destitute. And yet, what does she do? She steps to the plate, she perseveres, and she fights for what is just and for what is right. Let's go back to the passage, if you will. Look at verses five, and I love this. And a widow in that town kept coming to him, meaning the unjust judge, saying, give me justice against my adversary. For even while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, (laughs) I will give her justice so she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. If you're taking notes, write down the phrase, wear me out, circle that in your Bible. That phrase is really an exceptional phrase. It's a boxing term in the ancient world. I don't know why it doesn't get translated here in the English, but it's a boxing term. So basically, here's what's going on in this widow's life. And by the way, when you think of judging in the ancient world, don't think of a beautiful courtroom. Don't think of a majestic judge sitting at his desk, fully robed, everything's pristine. You know how they judged in the ancient world? This was itinerant judging. They would go from town to town, community to community. They would set up the tent. A woman in that day was not allowed into the court. It was reserved for men only, patriarchal society. So guess what she's doing, if you can picture it. 
She's running around this tent outside in the community. Let's say Jericho or Bethany. It doesn't matter. She's screaming bloody murder because there's injustice. She's standing up for herself. She's fighting for herself. Now, the boxing term, here's what I can see. I can see this widow, a senior lady, metaphorically speaking, putting on boxing gloves. And basically, if you want to know really what's going on here, she's ticked off. <laughs> so she's running around this tent. This judge is watching this. He's getting a little bit fearful because the Greek word here says basically that she was ready to punch him in the eye and give him a black eye. Now, I don't know. You know, again, if there's, there's a little bit of humor here, but I think this unjust pagan judge caved because he began to be a bit fearful of this widow who put on her boxing gloves. My mom's 85, and she's feisty. I've seen a little bit of that kind of spirit in my mom when things sometimes get unjust in her life, and she has to stand up for herself. I think that's what's going on here. And so this guy caves because of her persistence. Now, what is the lesser to the greater? Here it is. The widow had nothing going for her, nothing at all. She had no access, right? She's running around the tent. She couldn't come in. She wasn't a man. She had no advocate. She had no husband, no son, no nephew, no elder in a village. She was all alone. She had no advocate. And she had no relationship with this pagan judge. You know what the lesser to the greater is? Here it is, folks. She had every disadvantage in the world where we, as Christians, believers, have every advantage in the world to pray. So let me unpack that for you. And it's really fun. And so first, why can we be faithful in prayer? Because we have access to the Father's throne of grace. Do you realize that? Folks, that's a beautiful gift. She had no access. Let me show you the access. It's Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Notice the next verse. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. How? With boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so let me ask you today, what need do you bring today to worship? What need are you carrying throughout this week? Where is life getting the best of you today? Where God says, hey, there's access. The curtain has been open. You can come in, find grace. I want to meet your need because I care for you. She had no access. We have access. Secondly, we can be faithful in prayer. Why? We have an advocate pleading our case. And again, guys, she had no advocate. She was all alone. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, notice, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'm so glad today because there are times in, in my life as I fall short of the glory of God, when I sin, when I miss his mark, I don't have to run from him. I have the privilege to run 
to him because I have an advocate, a lawyer, Jesus Christ the righteous, pleading my case. And friends, we see in Scripture at times, King David ran like a spiritual fugitive. We never have to run when we fall short. Why? Christ's work at Calvary. He pleads our case with the Father. Father, forgive them in their sin. Finally, we have access, we have an advocate, and then the beautiful thing here, we can be faithful in prayer because we are accepted into God's family. Again, trying to put myself in this widow's shoes, she had no acceptance in the ancient world, zero, none whatsoever. She's running outside the tent, no one advocating for it, no access. There was no acceptance. Guess what? In our life, it's just the opposite. Let me share with you the acceptance, 1 John 3, 1. Look at how great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children. Folks, the privilege to pray is this. We have access through Christ. We have an advocate in Christ. And we are brothers and sisters with Christ. She had none of that, the lesser. We have all of that, the greater. Why don't we relentlessly pray? God has made a way for us to persevere and be ready through prayer. And so focus on the Father, focus on faithfulness, and finally, focus on the future. We'll tie it all up with verse 8. Look at verse 8. Nevertheless, it's a question. When the Son of Man comes, second coming of Christ, imminent return of Jesus, going back to chapter 17, this is the question. Will he find that faith or the faith, definite article, on earth? Folks, put your name there in verse 18 because that's what Jesus is asking right now. When the Son of Man comes back, will Keith Missal be living faithfully in Christ? Will I be ready? Will my lamp be burning? Am I prepared to meet my Savior? That's a question, and only you can answer that right now. But what are the ways we get prepared and stay prepared? Is to be relentless in prayer, to be on our knees. You know, I find it interesting how motivating the future is. For eight months right now, we've been thinking about, hoping for, even praying about a cure for COVID-19, right? Eight months. We believe there's a better future when the vaccine comes and this uh, virus will be eradicated. We're looking to the future. Pfizer this past week said, we're close. We're about 90% good. It could be coming. Stock market shot up almost 1,000 points. Stock market looks to the future. How much more so? You and I, when things seem to go from bad to worse, when darkness seems to be dispelling light, when it looks like we're living in the days of Noah and Lot, days that are evil, how much more so we should anticipate Christ's second coming? I want to close with a passage. I want to invite you to turn there because the Apostle Paul went through a lot in his faith journey. 25 years, and if you read 2 Corinthians 12, you see a man who persevered, who endured, who prayed. Read the epistles. But 2 Timothy chapter 4 is a passage about the future, and it's a passage about hope. It's a passage about believing there's a righteous judge who will reward us one day for faithfully and relentlessly praying. So follow along, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. 
I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And I love this. Listen to this. There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, the reward, which the Lord, the righteous judge, we've talked about the righteous judge, will give me on that day. What day? The day of his appearing, the day of his second coming. And not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. I've often wondered as I studied that passage, what does it mean to love the Lord's appearing? I think it means a lot, abiding in Christ, you know, living faithfully, all that. But I know one thing for sure, it means relentlessly praying, communing with the Father. It's a day and night praying without ceasing, as the Apostle Paul said. It's having that hope that your good, good Father will take care of your needs, even in times of difficulty.